How's it going? Welcome to the very first episode of Mood for Feud. Woo! Thank you so much for being here. Some of you may know that I have literally been trying to put this podcast together this entire year. It was my goal to launch it in 2023. And obviously, you know, classic, in classic Katya fashion, I had to wait till like there was only one month left before I managed to get my shit together. But here we are. And here you are. Thank you so much for being here. You're officially one of those people who's like cool, hip, trendsetting. You know about stuff before it blows up. You know, like you hear a popular song on the radio and you're like, I remember listening to this on SoundCloud. You know, TikTok will discover some like random new artist and you'll be like, I've been following them since they were 12 years old. And you Imagine Dragons when there was still a girl in the band. (laughs) I did actually know Imagine Dragons when there was still a girl in the band. Anyway, I want to get straight into it. In this episode, we're covering two bitchin' broads, Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. A little disclaimer, I was sick when I recorded this episode. So if my voice sounds a little bit scratchy or you're like, ugh, she is sniffling all the time, don't worry, it should only be for this one because I was sick. I have been healthy for the other ones that I have recorded. However, before we get into the feud, I do want to give a little intro into why I decided to start podcasting. Lord knows we already have enough podcasts. I am really saturating an already saturated market, but I just want to give you a little bit into why I'm deciding to do this anyway. If you literally don't care about that and you just want to get straight to the content, that is absolutely fine. I have got some timestamps in the show notes so you can skip ahead to the content or to the bits that you are interested in. And that saves you the effort of having to leave me a one-star review and be like, the intro is so long because, you know, there you go. You can skip. You can skip right ahead. For the rest of you who are still here, I just wanted to give a little background um, into why I decided to start doing this. So yeah, if you know me, you know I am pop culture obsessed and even though it can be pop culture can be labeled as being a bit shallow or, you know, a bit of a surface level interest or hobby. I actually think it is it is more deep than it presents itself to be because pop culture in reality influences consumerism, it impacts marketing and fashion, it can influence our interests and change the way that we speak online. Yeah, so even though it's this kind of vapid thing, it's got quite tangible outcomes in society and that's what really draws me into it. I listen to a lot of other pop culture podcast uh, creators and I love the way that they deep dive into different aspects of pop culture and they come at it with a critical lens to kind of untangle some of those greater forces that are at play. And I am in such awe of what they do and I also really wanted to contribute to that space and bring my own thoughts to the conversation. And that's basically why we're here. At the same time, I have all this pop culture knowledge in my brain and I literally have nowhere to put it or nothing to do with it. And so at the very least, this is just like a nice little passion project for me to put those thoughts somewhere, um, even if it is into the void a little. So yeah, it's a it's a passion project. So Mood for Feud is going to deep dive into some of my favorite feuds in pop culture. And I love drama, I love scandal, I love gossip. And feuds really have all of those things. So it was a natural topic for me to land on. 
I am literally that person where if you're telling me about some fight between two of your co-workers and even if I have no idea who they are and I'll never meet them, I will still be so invested because I'm literally just so nosy. And luckily for me, celebrities air their shit out all the time. So I don't even have to go digging that hard to find it. Yeah, that's how I landed here. If you've got any feuds in particular that stand out to you and you'd like me to cover, please let me know. I am on Instagram at Mood for Feud. Uh, follow along. I do post, you know, some photos or videos that I talk about in episodes there. So definitely check that out. That's enough from me. Let's get into the first episode. I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, hope you learn something new. Let me know what you think. And God, I don't really know what else to say. Have fun listening. So Betty Davis and Joan Crawford are two iconic actresses uh, that were part of the glamorous old Hollywood. I don't remember the first time I heard who Joan Crawford was, but I do really distinctly remember the first time I looked up Betty Davis, and that's because my mom would always listen to that song that's like, she's got Betty Davis eyes, and I just was so intrigued by that. Like, who is Betty Davis? What do her eyes look like? Why are they so interesting that this lady wrote a whole song about it? So I googled her and I have to say she does have incredible eyes. They are just absolutely piercing. So I get the hype. I think I've seen one of Betty Davis's movies as well. I think I watched Jezebel uh, at some stage in uni, um, probably part of my film degree. And yeah, she's a great actress. I haven't actually seen any of Joan Crawford's work, but I do really want to go watch some of her movies after this. I do actually really enjoy watching old Hollywood movies. So even though these two women have one of the most long-lived feuds in history that is still being talked about in 2023, I actually found when I was researching them that they also shared a lot of similarities. I'm going to give you a bit of a background uh, into each of these women and let me know what you think. When I was researching them, I actually was really shocked at just how many uncanny things they had in common. Uh, so let's start with Joan Crawford. It's actually a little unclear as to what year she was born. So her tombstone stated 1908. In her daughter's memoir, she wrote 1904. And when Joan registered at a college in Missouri, she wrote 1906 as her birth date. So it's a little unclear, but let's just say she was born somewhere between 1904 and 1908. She was born in Texas under the name Lucille Faye-Lasseur, and she is an Aries. So her dad was not in the picture and she was actually raised by her stepfather who operated an opera house and a theater and Joan would often accompany him to work and this is where she really got her passion for the performing arts. And so when she was older she decided that she wanted to be a dancer and she actually joined a traveling dance troupe. Now while she was performing with this dance troupe in New York City an MGM talent scout actually discovered her. MGM of course being the major movie network Metro Goldwyn and Meyer. And Hollywood did operate a little differently back then so it was largely dominated by the studio systems and basically what that meant is that a studio like MGM for example would hire these actors and actresses under contracts and while you were under that contract you would basically only make movies with that one studio and they would do the same that had contracts for writers and directors so the studios actually largely ran the film industry it's not like it is today where you'll see actors make films for multiple different studios 
So after she was uh, discovered by the talent scout in New York City, in 1925, Joan Crawford moved to Hollywood, and this is also when she changed her name from Lucille to Joan Crawford as her stage name. I'm not sure why she did that. I, there's some sources that say she wanted like a more American-sounding name. I'm not sure how true that is. I think Lucille Faye LeServe is actually a really stunning name. If I were her, I would have probably kept it but I guess it's a different time and Joan Crawford does sound a bit more American. So 1925 she moves to Hollywood and by the 1930s she's actually in one of the top 10 money-making stars so her career is going incredibly well and she's making a lot of movies. Joan Crawford was known for playing characters that had a rags to riches kind of storyline and I think this suits Joan well because she I mean, I don't think she grew up super poor necessarily, but she definitely didn't grow up as like a Nepo baby or something like that. So she, you know, she started in a dance troupe and she was kind of scouted, which I just think that's such a cool story for coming into Hollywood. I think that's like every little girl's dream who wants to be a performer, that you'll just be like walking through the supermarket singing and this man will come and tap you on the shoulder and be like, I'm, I'm a scout for Disney Channel and we need you to be in Wizards of Waverly Place right now. Anyway, so yeah, 1930s, Joan's doing really well, but by the 1940s, her films actually stopped making money. And this is around the same time that she adopts her first child, Christina, and later she would also adopt a boy named Christopher. In 1943, Joan terminates her contract with MGM and joins Warner Brothers. Uh, and Warner Brothers is the studio where Betty Davis was working. In 1945, Joan Crawford was cast in Mildred Pierce, but she actually clashed with the director, Michael Curtis, who originally wanted to cast Betty Davis in the role. However, when Betty Davis turned down the role, the studio decided that Joan Crawford should get the title role of Mildred Pierce, and Michael Curtis was not happy about that. He was quoted as saying, why should I waste my time directing a has-been? And he had a really weird issue with Joan's shoulder pads. So Michael alleged that Joan was always wearing shoulder pads underneath all of her costumes. And so he actually burst into one of her costume fittings and tore off the front of her dress to try expose her shoulder pads, which is just insane. And stories like this do kind of remind me that even though it sometimes feels like we haven't come that far in Hollywood in terms of how women are treated, I would like to think that if a director burst into someone's costume room and just tore off their the top of their dress, they would probably get cancelled and hopefully be at least removed from the project. They probably would continue to work, but they'd at least get removed some kind of repercussion. Uh, but at the time, this wasn't really anything unusual, and Joan was just quoted saying she was really thankful that she was wearing a bra that day. Uh, which honestly just breaks my heart a little bit. So yeah, he doesn't sound like the best guy. Either way, um, Joan Crawford stuck it out. She made the movie. And in 1945, she actually won an Oscar for Best Actress. So I don't know. What can we learn? Probably that even if you've got a really shitty boss or something, if you stick it out, you might get an Oscar. You decide if that's worth a form of sexual harassment. In 1947, Joan Crawford adopted twins Kathy and Cynthia, and she actually ended up leaving most of her fortune to these twins. She had a very rocky relationship with her eldest, her first adopted child, Christina. 
In her lifetime, Joan was married four times. Three ended in divorce, and the last ended when her husband died. Her last husband was actually a Pepsi ambassador, and his name was Alfred Steele. And upon his death, Joan was elected onto the board of directors, so she kind of took over his role at Pepsi, which is pretty cool. Now, onto Betty Davis. She was born in 1908, so similar age to one of the years that Joan Crawford could potentially have been born in. She is also an Aries, and for any astrology girlies listening, you'll know that two Aries in competing industries are probably not going to get along, so I feel like this feud was just a canon event. It just had to happen. Betty Davis was born Ruth Elizabeth Davis, but grew up being called Betty. Her father left when she was 10, so she also didn't grow up with her dad in the in the house but she was largely pretty much raised by her mother Ruthie and Ruthie saved all her money to make sure she could send her girls to private school. Go moms! After finishing school Betty Davis attended a drama school and by age 22 she moved to Hollywood to screen test for Universal Studios. She actually had a really rough start with them. The studio was not her biggest fan and they wanted to terminate her employment completely but one of their directors really liked her eyes those Betty Davis eyes coming to save her this is why she gets a whole song about them so his name was Carl Freund and so she managed to spend a year at Universal Studios before they then decided to not renew her contract so after her contract wasn't renewed with Universal Studios Betty Davis kind of felt like maybe her acting career was over and she was getting ready to move back home. But George Alice, an actor who worked for Warner Brothers at the time, actually handpicked Betty Davis to co-star alongside him in a movie. And this gave her her head start. So, well, this gave her her main start. Betty Davis actually was quoted saying that it was George Alice who single-handedly saved her career because if it weren't for him, she would have gone home and would have stopped acting. Betty Davis was mostly known for playing unsympathetic and cynical characters who were often conf confrontational, had some gusto, and she had a really intense acting style, fiercely independent, and even in Jezebel, which I you know I've only seen one movie of hers, but in Jezebel, you can so see that energy coming through. Like She just seems like a really brazen, confident, unapologetic woman. So... After starting at Warner Brothers, she starred in the film Dangerous, and she eventually won the Oscar for that. She didn't think she would win, so she actually wasn't going to go to the Oscars. However, Jack Warner, who was one of the studio heads, pretty much like told her she had to attend. So to kind of spite him, she wore this like kind of costumey, old-looking navy dress. And like by navy, I mean like on the boats navy, not the shade of blue so she wears this old navy dress to kind of spite him and look ugly and she does end up winning so she goes up in her little navy dress and accepts her oscar which is i don't know i think that's pretty cool i think a lot of people take the oscars super seriously and i'm not saying that she didn't but i think it's kind of iconic that she went up there not in her best dress uh, to accept the award so i'll try to find a photo of that for the instagram now some sources claim that she is the first actress for Warner Brothers to win a Best Actress Oscar. I'm not entirely sure how true that is. I did try to do some digging, but I wasn't able to find any concrete information. Now, Betty Davis also claims that she is the reason why we now call the Oscar Awards Oscar. 
and call me stupid, but I always thought Oscar stood for something. Like I always thought it was like outstanding, screen, something, acting, something. But turns out it's actually just called the Academy Award and Oscar is like a nickname for it. And Betty Davis claims that when she saw the statue, the like butt of it reminded her of her then husband's butt and his middle name is Oscar. And so she started calling the statue Oscar because she thought the butt looked like her husband's butt, which I think is pretty funny. I have read a couple of conflicting stories from people who think that they are actually the ones who first called the Oscar Oscar, but they weren't like half as entertaining as her version. So if I had to pick a reality, I'd say yes, 100% we call the Oscars Oscars because Betty Davis's husband's butt resembled the butt of this Oscar. Betty Davis stayed at Warner Brothers for 18 years. It was a bit of a rocky relationship. Uh, there were many times where she was mad at the studios, either because of the roles they gave her or because she wasn't happy with her co-stars, etc. There was actually one time where she broke her contract's rules and left for England and made two movies in England, which the studio was not at all happy about. They actually went to court over it. And the court case was held in England and unfortunately Betty Davis did lose. I think the main consensus from the people at the court trial was that Betty Davis was kind of labelled as this brat who should just be grateful to be working in Hollywood and just accept the parts that get given to her. And it's funny because I think we still see a similar narrative today. For example, when Jennifer Lawrence spoke out about not getting paid the same as her co-stars in that Don't Look Up movie uh, with Leo DiCaprio and people were like, oh, but she's making millions of dollars per movie. Like some people have to work three jobs just to make rent. She shouldn't be complaining about her money. And like, I get that sentiment completely. But at the same time, she's not complaining that she can't like get by with the money that she's getting. She's complaining that she's being valued less than her male counterparts. And I think regardless of what the work is and how ridiculous you might think the pay is, men and women should always be paid equally or like pay based on skill and performance and not gender. And so Betty Davis was often labeled difficult to work with, which when I when I read that, especially about a woman who's like historical, I always think, was she difficult to work with or was she hard to control? You know, like, was she difficult to work with or did she not let you get away with your shit? Did she stand up for herself and for her values and not get pushed around? So, I mean, who knows? I'll never know. I was never on set with her when she was working. But I, I think too often you'll find that, like, these kind of strong and outspoken and unapologetic women always happen to be labeled difficult to work with. And I guess it stings me a little bit because I can sometimes be a little bit like that. But I like to think that I'm not difficult to work with. I just stand my ground if I, yeah, I just stand my ground if I, if I think I need to. So Betty Davis's acting career actually spanned six decades, which is super incredible. During her lifetime, she was also married four times, like Joan. Three ended in divorce, and one of her marriages ended when her husband died. Same as Joan. Uh, Davis had three children, her eldest daughter, Beady, and two children who she adopted with her last husband, and they were called Michael and Margot. So again, we've got that similarity of adopting children as well, which I don't know if that was like more common back then or if it is actually 
a weird coincidence that these two both um, adopted children. Either way, I think that's really cool. I definitely want to adopt a child someday. I just think, yeah, I just think there's so many perks to adopting. Adopt, don't shop. Now that we know a little bit about their histories, let's get into the feud. This feud is actually, considering how old it is, it's actually incredibly well documented, I thought, which I think shows that it's really stood the test of time. I personally didn't know too much about this feud before I started researching it, other than that it existed, but I didn't know like any of the details. However, I do love old Hollywood. I have a fascination with it. I love old Hollywood films. I love the old Hollywood actresses. I think the old Hollywood actors are like okay, but I think the actresses in particular just I find them really gripping because they're so glamorous and striking a lot of them. But I will say I think because they are part of old Hollywood and they weren't alive and acting in my lifetime, sometimes they can seem a little bit one-dimensional or I guess what I mean by that is they can seem a little not human because you know every time we see Katherine Hepburn it's her in these like beautifully poised photos or on screen wearing her like Chanel outfits and same with like Marilyn Monroe you know like she's always looking so glamorous and it's just I you know I think of that iconic um photo of her in her like sparkly silver dress the one that Kim ripped R.I.P. But like they, but it's hard to tell or hard to picture them as like actual humans, you know, like try picturing Marilyn Monroe taking a shit or something like it's really hard to do. Whereas like I've got no problems picturing Florence Pugh taking a shit. I don't know. Sorry, that's really vulgar. But do you get my point? Like because they could because we only see them in their polished form. We they sometimes don't seem that human to me. Anyway, let me know if you agree with that or not or if I'm just sounding crazy here. And so I actually really enjoyed researching this feud because I think feuds, you know, like it's people at their pettiest moments sometimes. It's like about conflict and drama. And that's where Joan Crawford and Betty Davis really seemed human to me. Betty and Joan are similar age, so they did often get compared similarly to how women of similar age often get compared in Hollywood today as well. I'm so sorry guys, I low-key just had a 30 minute break. You might have noticed that I do sound a little bit sick. Uh, so I actually just stopped and I made myself a little hot drink to try and just calm my throat down. And then I started scrolling on TikTok and now like 30 minutes has passed. So bear with while I get back into it. So as I was saying, a lot of people kind of assume that Betty Davis and Joan Crawford were competing for the same roles all the time and that's how their feud started. Um, but as we know from their... A background deep dive that we did, Joan Crawford didn't start working for Warner Brothers, the studio where Betty Davis worked, until 1943. And so it's like, you know, like a decade after she made her start in Hollywood. So that kind of narrative isn't entirely true. So where did this feud actually begin? Well, most sources say that it started in 1935 when Betty Davis was starring alongside Franco Tone in the movie Dangerous. Uh, now, if you recall, that's the one that Betty Davis ends up winning her first Oscar for. So 1935, Betty Davis is starring alongside Franco, and in a 1987 interview where Betty Davis was looking back on this time filming, she actually said, quote, I fell in love with Franco professionally and privately. Privately. Everything about him reflected his elegance from his name to his manners. So Betty Davis had like a bit of a crush on Franco, I guess you could say, and she was really taken by him. However, while they were actually still filming Dangerous, Franco, Tone and Joan Crawford announced their engagement. 
Now at the time Joan Crawford was the bigger actress and Francho Tone was absolutely stoked to be dating you know and it's we're in the 30s right now and Joan Crawford was one of the top 10 money-making stars so he was doing pretty well for himself getting engaged to Joan and so Joan Crawford would come on set every day and they'd have lunch together and Betty Davis was not happy about this in that same 1987 interview she said quote she took him from me she did it coldly deliberately and with complete ruthlessness and when I first started looking into this I was like is that a little bit harsh like if you had a bit of a crush on a co-worker or someone you worked with and then you found out that they were engaged I don't know wouldn't it just be more of like a oh bummer type situation rather than turning into this whole like she took him from me she did it coldly I always thought that was really intense and then I put my like conspiracy hat on and I was like oh my god unless Francho was actually leading Betty Davis on while they were filming and you know maybe they actually made out or or whatever you said back then he courted her and then she found out about their engagement and now she's like Joan Crawford took them. This is all like completely alleged and just from my cuckoo side of my brain but I just think it's like such a harsh reaction to have over your co-worker unless there was some kind of shared history or something going on behind the scenes. Anyway Joan Crawford was questioned about this at some point as well and she was quoted as saying Tone thought Betty was a good actress but never thought of her as a woman which is also a super scathing comment to make about someone right like what did he think of her as then a prop or I don't know oh my god I thought that was just that was just stone cold. So at the Oscars when Betty Davis wins and goes up in her little costume navy dress allegedly Francho Tone obviously being her co-star was super happy for her and embraced her and Joan Crawford was just saying nothing like she was just icing Betty Davis out couldn't care less that she'd just won and Francho actually says to Joan like oh don't be rude say you know like congratulate Betty and so she allegedly turned to Betty and said dear Betty what a lovely frock which of course is like super snaky because Betty Davis is wearing her little like costume dress that she deliberately wore to like piss off Jack Warner of course her dress isn't I mean I don't even think it looks that bad but back then it was all about the glamour and the glitz so you wouldn't be caught dead wearing the wrong kind of dress I'd actually love to see someone like Joan Crawford reacting to what celebrities wear now all the little dresses with their cutouts that look like they're from Supre anyway that was unnecessarily mean and so this whole little incident in 1935 this little like mini love triangle definitely established a bit of cattiness between Betty and Joan but from what I can tell from these quotes that I'm reading and their accounts of what happened I'd say they're both on a pretty even playing field there isn't one person who I think is very much the villain here and another person who's the victim like I think both women can really stand their ground when it comes to feuding with one another and we'll see that continue around this time as well people start to spread gossip that Crawford might have had a bit of a crush on Betty Davis I'm not sure how true that is we'll probably never know however John Crawford was confirmed to be bisexual which is really cool especially for the early um you know 1900s it would have been very rare for someone to I don't think she was like necessarily like out the closet at the time but later in life she did kind of say there wasn't like a term for it but she always knew that she was attracted to men and women equally that's kind of where the feud 
begins and Betty Davis and Joan Crawford during interviews would often be asked about one another um, and they'd have like little witty quips and stuff to say about one another but there wasn't really anything further until 1943 when Joan Crawford moves to Warner Brothers. Now suddenly they are competing for roles or at least they're being considered for the same roles. So I guess here you could say there's a little bit more tension. And by the 1950s, both women would have been labelled as past their prime. And this really does say a lot for the treatment of older women in Hollywood because they would have been they would have been in their late 40s at this stage, so not old at all. But especially in old Hollywood, and I'm not saying by any means that the treatment of older women in Hollywood is great nowadays, but especially back then it was like really harsh for women to be playing roles, main character roles, when once they kind of reached their like mid to late 40s. Often by the time women in old Hollywood were in their late 40s, early 50s, they would kind of be pigeonholed into either playing moms or grandmas and they took on that kind of like more maternal character, but they they never played any more the like complex characters or the main characters yeah I'm talking about the general the general like classics in Hollywood um in fact studios hated casting older women so much that if there was ever a character that was a little bit older they would actually just cast younger actresses and um they would just age them with hair and makeup and costumes and things you know young actresses got to play the young roles and young actresses also got to play the old roles and I'd hate to say it, but we do still see some bad treatment of... We do still see this happening in Hollywood today where an actress will reach a certain age and suddenly all the movies you see her, she is just playing like the mom or the grandma. And that's kind of like all there is to her personality. And that's why I always find it so incredible when we get actresses like Meryl Streep, for example, who really push those boundaries. Like that woman could not be pigeonholed if you wanted to. You know, she was, I think she was in her 50s, or nobody quote me if I'm wrong, but um, when she played Donna and Mamma Mia, and like, yeah, she's playing a mum in that, but she's also the main character, and like, the story centers around her, and she's seen as like, sexual, and fun, and flirty, and energetic, and complex, and not like, her whole point isn't just that she's a mum. And then also in Devil Wears Prada, which I think she was in when she was like in her 50s maybe or early 60s even and like again Miranda Priestley is a super complex interesting main character who isn't even a mom and um yeah I think Meryl Streep definitely does a really good job of refusing to be aged out of Hollywood so anyway by the 1950s both women are kind of struggling for parts a bit um they're struggling for money as well Davis is struggling to get cast in any box office successes and losing out to the new up-and-coming young actresses and Joan Crawford is left broke after Alfred Steele the Pepsi man dies in 1959 and so both women are kind of stuck and they need to figure out how they can generate more income when all the Hollywood odds are stacked against them so in the early 1960s Joan stumbles upon the story of whatever happened to baby Jane now and the story is about an elderly differently abled uh, former A-list movie star and a psychotic sister who torments her and so right away when Joan reads the script she's kind of thinking huh now here's like a really cool role that's made for older women 
but it's not about being pigeonholed into being a mom or a grandma like this is you know there's some depth here there's some there's something exciting and of course the main character the differently abled former a-list movie star has a nemesis being her psychotic sister and so she thinks to herself hmm Betty Davis who she's already feuding with would be a great counterpart to this movie so Joan actually visits Davis who at the time is working on Broadway and asks her to play opposite her Joan was going to play Blanche, who's the elderly former A-list movie star, and Betty was going to play Jane, the psychotic sister. Betty actually agrees to take the role under the condition that the director, Robert Aldrich, was not sleeping with Joan because she wanted to make sure that there was going to be no favoritism on set or any kind of carry on with only putting good lighting on Joan and bad lighting on her and things like that. And again, I think we see here an example of Betty Davis really knowing her worth because if I was in her position and I was struggling for money and someone comes along and they're like, oh my God, you want to be in this movie with me? I'd just be like, yeah. I wouldn't even think to be like, are you sleeping with the director? Are we both going to get equal and fair opportunities on the film set? So (laughs) good for her. She's always keeping her wits about her. So at this time in Hollywood, there was this kind of stereotype of women in Hollywood who would try to remain relevant past their prime and of course like past their prime I'm putting into quote marks because these women are not old at this point by any means but that's kind of the the narrative once people kind of catch wind that Betty Davis and Joan Crawford are working on this movie together like I don't think anyone really thought it was going to be a major success people kind of were like oh my god this is so embarrassing look at these husbands trying to like trying to still make it in Hollywood and I think again we hear we see just like a little bit of mistreatment of women because I think about male actors and they're just not subject to that same expiration similar to today like we've got terms like silver fox to describe a man who's graying and we don't really have like a female equivalent to that I often find that men are sometimes celebrated for how they age whereas women are kind of just shoved to the side So while these two are filming their little movie, reports of pettiness start to trickle in. So it all starts apparently with Betty Davis installing a Coca-Cola machine in her dressing room, which of course is a direct stab at Joan, who at the time is a board of who was at the time on the board of directors for Pepsi. There's a scene where Betty Davis's character beats um, Joan Crawford's character. And Joan Crawford actually requested a body double because she was scared that Betty Davis would take this opportunity to hurt her in real life. There was a close-up shot where the director decided they couldn't use the body double because it would be too obvious. And Betty Davis smacked Joan in the head so hard that she apparently needed stitches. However, when Betty Davis was asked about this, she said she barely touched her. Which actually reminds me of how siblings fight. Like, you'll fully WWE body slime your sister, but then when she starts crying, you'll be like, what? I I barely laid a finger on her. Anyway, John Crawford definitely got back at Betty Davis in a different scene where Betty Davis's character has to drag John Crawford's character out of bed. Crawford apparently made herself super heavy. Some people say she stuffed rocks in her pockets. Other people say she was wearing like a heavyweight belt underneath her outfit and then would purposely ruin takes so that Davis had to basically just repeatedly schlep her out of the bed in her like with her extreme weight. And Betty Davis at the time also has a bad back. So this was again just like super petty trying to trying to make it hard for Betty Davis as hard for Betty Davis as possible. 
I think it's interesting to note that these stories are all coming out from like other cast members and crew who are working on set and just like Hollywood gossip, right? But when Betty and Joan were actually asked about this alleged feud whilst they were filming, they both maintained that they were not feuding at all and that they were actually getting along fine. And so I think there could be one of two things going on here. Either there really was no feuding and this is all just pushed this whole narrative is just pushed by the industry to kind of garner press or Betty and Joan just were lying. I think it is interesting to consider that the industry was fueling this because it's similar to what we see with like PR relationships today, right? Like a movie will come out and then suddenly the two main actors will be like paparazzi kissing in a car or something. And then people want to go see the movie more because they want to try to figure out if they can see like real chemistry whilst the people are acting. And I guess it's a similar situation here where Betty and Joan had that historic feud from 1935. And now that they're making this movie together, maybe the industry was kind of trying to push the narrative like, oh my God, these two were absolutely um, fighting it out on set and you'll just have to come see the movie to see that like real life hatred uh, portrayed on screen. And again, you, we have to remember that while they were filming it, nobody thought this movie was going to be good. Like, no one thought it would do well. Everyone thought it would do terribly because the two main characters are these, like, outdated Hollywood actresses. So it does make sense that the industry would kind of, like, push this narrative to garner press and generate some kind of hype around it. In 1963, it's the Oscars, and the film is a total success, propelling the careers of both women, which, like, I feel like I can't mention this enough. This was a, this was a huge achievement for these two, because they kind of showed Hollywood that there were roles for women of their age, and that films that cast older women could be successful. They sparked a new genre of horror movies deemed hagsploitation, which is a portmanteau of hags, which is, you know, obviously a word for old women, typically, and um, exploitation. It's like exploiting old women to make horror movies. And hags, this hagsploitation actually inspired a lot of cheap remakes where studios would basically just take the exact same concept and were trying to just reproduce it over and over again after seeing how successful what ever happened to baby Jane was. Now here's where things get a little bit ugly because Betty Davis receives a nomination for her role as the like psychotic sister and Joan Crawford receives absolutely nothing. No nominations, she's completely snubbed and we have to remember it was her idea to make this movie in the first place. Like she read the script, she saw the potential, she cast herself and Betty Davis and yet she got no credit for it. But Joan Crawford is a woman who never quits and so rather than sitting around and sulking about it she thought of alternative ways to still have her moment at the 1963 Oscars. She actually ended up approaching all the other women who were nominated in Betty Davis's category. We're talking of the likes of Catherine Hepburn, Lee Rimmick, Geraldine Page and Anne Bancroft and she calls these ladies up and offers to accept their Oscars on their behalf if they win and if they can't attend the Oscars and these actresses all happen to be east coast based and of course the Oscars are in the west coast and you know travel wouldn't have been as easy as it was today and it might not have actually been worth the energy and time for these women to travel to the Oscars all the way across the United States and then not win 
Um, so they actually all agreed. So suddenly the odds go from Joan Crawford receiving no nominations to pretty much if anyone wins Best Actress aside from Betty Davis, Joan Crawford gets to go up on stage. I think this is super smart and this is actually a pretty like boss move. Anyway, skip forward to Oscar night and Bancroft actually wins for her role. And of course, as organized, Joan Crawford goes up on stage to accept the Oscar on her behalf. She like apparently just like completely strutted past Betty Davis, like feeling herself. She was photographed holding the Oscar with all the other winners because, you know, like she she accepted the award on their behalf. So she gets to be in all the photo ops. And the night actually ends up being more about her than about Betty. And now Betty was absolutely furious about this. And she maintained for the rest of her life that Crawford actually campaigned against her and was the reason that she didn't win. Crawford, of course, completely denies this. But in that 1987 interview with Betty Davis that I mentioned earlier, she said she was so angry about this because the film could have actually been way more successful if she'd gotten the Oscar. And in her mind, you know, Joan Crawford kind of sabotaged everything and in the process, like, won the battle but lost the war. And the movie could have been, like, ten times bigger if she'd been an Oscar winner. I think another reason why Betty Davis is so angry about this is because if she'd won that night, she would have actually been the first person to win three Oscars. And she was quoted as saying, As an Aries, I always have to be first. I should have had it that year, no question. So in her mind, truly, Joan Crawford is the sole reason why she, one, didn't win the Oscar that night, and two, didn't become the first person to win three Oscars. But also... Interesting. She knows that as an Aries, she is like super competitive and fiery. I love that. We love a self-aware queen. Following the success of uh, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, of course, Crawford and Davis set out to star together in another film. However, after only a week and a half of filming, Joan Crawford actually goes missing. And the directors and everyone like hired private investigators to hunt her down. And then when they found her eventually, she said that she didn't want to make the movie anymore and she was out. Some people rumor that they started filming and Joan Crawford got like intimidated by Betty Davis and decided that she didn't want to be outstaged again and so would rather um, not continue with the project, but it's unclear how true that is. So Joan Crawford unfortunately died from a heart attack in 1977 and Betty Davis was quoted as saying, You should never say bad things about the dead. You should only say good. Joan Crawford is dead. Good. Which is a pretty killer quote about your nemesis, and I'll probably be quoted saying the exact same when my nemesis dies. Of course, it's unclear how true this is. It was apparently someone like had told her that Joan Crawford had died, and then she came back with that like super, super witty quote. But yeah, we'll never, we'll never really know how true that is. So that is kind of everything that I managed to find out about their feud. What do you think? Did these women actually hate each other? Was the feud kind of exaggerated a bit by the media to generate PR for whatever happened to Baby Jane? Or was the feud exaggerated to kind of pit these powerful women against each other? Because as we know, Hollywood loves to pit powerful women against each other. Is there an alternate universe where these two could have actually been friends? I think so. I absolutely think, I like wholeheartedly believe that. They've got so much in common and in a way they were probably the only people who understood what the other person was going through. They both worked in the same cutthroat industry. They both kind of worked their way up to get into that industry. They both had like 
really big pits and really big peaks in their career, had several marriages, both adopted children, and I didn't have too much time to go into this, but both of their eldest daughters actually ended up writing really scathing biographies about them alleging neglect and child abuse whilst growing up. So Betty Davis's daughter BD wrote a memoir called My Mother's Keeper and John Crawford's eldest daughter Christina wrote the memoir Mummy Dearest. And yeah, the accounts in there are pretty scathing, but again, it's unclear how true that is. And there are actually sources who are close to both Betty and Joan who deny the allegations that are made in those books. And people kind of accused Christina and Betty of just being like money hungry and looking for a quick cash grab. But let me know if you'd like to know more about that. I could potentially do like a little follow up mini episode about the um, about their biographies and the abuse that they allege, and how true or untrue this potentially is. Anyway, I just find that really interesting that they both had eldest daughters who ended up doing that. So yeah, I think these two could have probably been friends, but they were both Aries, so that was never going to happen. Anyway, that is all that I have on this episode. Let me know if you liked it or not. Sorry that my voice is a little bit sick and croaky today. I hope you all have a great week and definitely make sure you tune in next week. Thank you so much for listening. Leave me a rating and a review. Give me some constructive feedback. I love constructive criticism. I'm a Capricorn, so I always want to strive to be better. And yeah, follow the Instagram at mood for few. And I'll see you guys next week. Bye.